0: Ready to take a deeper look at where history, politics, and economics all intersect? Well, then you've come to the right place. Each week, here's where we pull back the headlines and focus on the big trends, the stuff that actually shapes our future. Through the noise, we focus on the signal. I'm your host, Neil Howe, and this is Demography Unplugged. Today is May 25th, 2021, and this is Demography Unplugged. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Every time on our podcast, I have here my fellow analyst, Christian Ford. Christian? Neil, it's uh, good to be back recording. Back recording again and uh, on this uh, beautiful uh, uh, spring day. We're going to keep our own comments on this podcast very brief because today... We're going to run a replay of an interview I did a couple of weeks ago with Chuck Todd, who invited me on his podcast, the Chuck Toddcast from Meet the Press. We had a great conversation and discussed millennials, now the largest living generation uh, and their transition into the largest voting generation uh, and, of course, the millennial impact on politics. Or I—I I should say that it was our intention to talk uh, mainly about millennials and politics, but I think we spent a, just as much time talking about generations and politics throughout uh, American history. I thought—I thought this would actually uh, be a good fit for this show, Christian. I—I I sometimes get emails from listeners asking me to talk more about generations and politics and, right. uh, you know, our, our, our four turnings and all that. And, well, here is where I do that. So <laughs> for all of you who's asked that question, this is, this is the answer. I should mention as well that a day later, Chuck invited me back for an on-air appearance on NBC's Meet the Press reports for a panel discussion on millennial politics with uh, actress Alisa Milano and New York Times columnist Jane Coaston. Uh, that interview is available on demand from NBC's streaming service, Peacock. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. Uh, as always, if you want to dive deeper into everything we talk about on this podcast, please consider subscribing to our research product, Demography Unplugged, which I put together with my team at Hedge Risk Management. You can go ahead and Google it, find out about it. Among other things, you will be able to get our newswire watch our show on COVID-19, all of our special uh, black books and reports, uh, interviews with guests and all the rest. And maybe I should mention here, Christian, as long as we're plugging our our demography unplugged, uh, that we've had some really good news wires in the past few weeks, right? Yes. I mean, I don't know. We had one on um, we did more on China, right? I know we've actually been covering that a bit on our on our podcast. Uh, I do believe we further explored that uh, uh, enigma wrapped in a mystery uh, <laughs> China birth China birth accounting and and figured out that they actually did raise their births uh, in the mid 2010s. That was actually announced on a, a press conference about a week ago. Uh, even while, they're allo- while they allowed the birth count to go down right at the end, right right at uh, 2020. Right. This enabled them to preserve the 1.4 billion mark, right? And this is what they've always—they didn't want to decelebrate that, right? So, this is their excuse. But what that does mean is that the uh, descent uh, of their for, uh, total fertility rate, which I think we mentioned on the podcast, has now been estimated at 1.3. Uh, total total fertility rate is uh, even steeper uh, because of that uh fourth wave increase you know particularly right around uh 2015 2016 and it does mean that the actual peaking of china population will occur even earlier than than we all thought Um, i think global times estimated uh, and they ought to know (laughs) what the party is (laughs) going to decide i think they estimated it could be like two or three years from now uh, we could actually see peaking. Yeah. 2022 is what the Global Times said. Well, then it's just right around the corner, isn't it? Yeah. And do you want me to add some numbers to this, Neil, that from 2011 to 2019, the number of births, they will up by an average of six percentage points or by nearly a million births each year. Well, I'm particularly peaking around the middle of the decade. And um, right. so there, there are all these uh, four and five and six-year-olds uh, in China that we, they didn't know they had. <laughs> so they can come out and meet them. Uh, we we did another piece, as I recall, on student debt and how the uh, right. the debt jubilee may already actually be happening, given the fact that according to new analyses, uh, particularly this most recent one. It's been um, uh, heavily plugged in the Wall Street Journal by Jeff Courtney. I believe he comes from J.P. Morgan, and he was brought in to look at the books, obviously under the last administration. So this has become very partisan political, but really showing that uh, the recovery rates on student debt suggest that, you know, as much as 40% of student debt may be unrecoverable. And in fact, what they're typically doing with people who aren't paying is just basically giving them new loans <laughs> and keeping it on the books. Uh, This is called Extend and Pretend. And uh, we do it with, you know, uh, uh, you know, emerging economies do it with zombie, uh, with zombie companies, and uh, a federal government is doing it with with zombie borrowers. But it is it, you know, look, I mean, I think that the whole mess of student debt and and the absurdity of the of, of what universities and colleges are charging you know thanks thanks to the availability of student debt is a is a complete horrible mismanagement of sort of our policy on higher ed and that someone's actually got to stop uh, you know got got to stop it by actually doing something else besides simply uh you know forgiving debt or extending debt or you know, just debt in general is not the answer right uh you right. have to have some way of actually uh uh, either expanding the supply of credentials or allowing people other ways of getting into the labor force and no one in government is really taking that on directly at least no one recently um, And then we another piece we did which i I really liked and I really enjoyed working on that was a recent piece on how millennials we finally have now absolutely superb new journal article. this actually appeared. In the Journal of Quantitative Criminology, right, by William Spellman at UT Austin, basically showing how the cohort effect, that is to say, just the impact of younger millennials has been responsible for at least half, possibly more, of the decline in crime over the past 30 years. It's not just the aging of the population. It's not period effects. It's not more police. It's not putting more people in prisons. Simply the fact that a new generation behaving differently at the same age is, you know, solving the solving the youth crime problem. A brilliant article. We take it apart piece by piece. Uh, we have some wonderful graphics in there. And I love the way it all came together at the end. We particularly showed this plummeting share of all crimes committed by the very young, right? Particularly under age 18. Uh, right. Whereas back in the back in the early and mid nineteen nineties, a very large share of all violent crime was committed by very young kids, right? And many of these were well, these were older generation. These were still Xers, right? And as we move ahead now, we find the younger the cohort, the less likely are they are to commit crime at the same age. Anyway, fascinating study. We did we did one just this morning, as I recall, on on Orthodox Jews and how young Young Jews in America are twice as likely to be Orthodox as their parents. Uh, another very interesting trend on uh, the, the relationship between, well, in this case, between uh, fertility and sort of rigorous religious observance and how that from a demographic perspective makes the future of religion look, look a lot different than as it usually looks when people think that, well, you know, the, the world is going to be inherited by nuns. Meaning, I should say, N O N E S, right? <laughs> uh, the the no religion crew. Well, it's it's not going to be inherited by them if they don't have any kids, <laughs> and and that's kind of very very interesting data coming out on that. And uh, this is another uh, kind of a theme that we sometimes talk about. Anyway, enough of all that. We don't want to talk about uh, our our stuff like this in, in brief. We're going to present to you this uh, podcast. And we're going to be back again, probably as we've recently been doing on our new schedule in about two weeks. Uh, right, Christian? That's right. All right. Until then, I uh, hope, uh, hope you enjoy this show. This week on Meet the Press Reports, we're looking at
1: how millennials are going to be changing our politics now that they're going to go from just being the largest generation to the largest voting generation. So joining me now is Neil Howe. He coined the term millennial. With William Strauss in 1991, he's currently the managing director of demography at Hedgeye Risk Management. He's written books on generational changes, including one that I've uh, consumed and devoured: "Generations," uh, also "The Fourth Turning," and "Millennials Rising." Neil, welcome to the Toddcast.
0: Uh, uh, thank you very much for having me.
1: Well, look, as a political journalist for the last thirty years. Um, if you're gonna if you're gonna be successful at it in covering campaigns, you have to be, you have to at least I, I always say become an amateur demographer. Uh, and so many of us have have, uh, have certainly generations in that in that sense. That book felt very. It, it has been definitional, uh, good or bad. I think it's good, if, assuming that you're you are right about this, but. Are, do you ever all get fearful that that you've set conventional wisdom for 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 generations right now? Uh, that that book set a conventional wisdom that that sort of everybody takes as gospel.
0: Well, I uh, you know, jeez, I mean you know every 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 uh, writer would like to have that happen, right? Yeah, it's a good um, problem,
1: but then it's the fear of <laughs> what if I'm proven wrong, right?
0: <laughs> well, that's the problem. Yeah, and I have a. Um, uh, a new book coming out. Actually, uh, it's been a while. I haven't written about this subject in a while, uh, but uh, you know, there's a huge amount of interest in it. Obviously, what happens, you know, what's happened in the last, you know, the last administration, and now with COVID and with what's mm-hmm. happening going into the 2020s. and so uh, got a lot of publisher interest and uh, sure. have a have a have a great deal. So I'm I'm uh, doing this book. It ought to be available uh, in twenty twenty two. And it will sort of update the whole schema and hopefully deepen it and um, and actually make clear its gl- uh, global implications. You know, the subject of global right. generations is one that uh, I often get asked about, uh, and and uh, that's particularly fascinating given what's happening politically around the world now.
1: Well, I want to focus on millennials because we're all trying to figure out. You have marketers and and you know, look, you were you you work at a at a, at a... At a risk management firm, so you know there's all sorts of reasons why people want to know how to market to millennials, how to uh, appeal to them. If you're a politician, Um, let me start with first this idea because you've you guys with with Strauss, the two of you, sort of you had this that there are four archetypes of generations, and going by your thesis, it means that. Is it the millennials or Gen X that's going to save us? Meaning, you know, who who is who is on the verge of being that that that, that which one of them is poised to be the one? Is it the millennials or is it actually Gen Z?
0: Well, the, you know, look, uh, the <laughs> it depends what you mean by saving us, right? I mean, if you mean attaining political power, uh, just remember that that uh, you know that happens. Later in life. I mean, millennials just aren't at that stage of life yet, particularly recently when uh, the average age of leadership is is obviously risen. Right. Right. In fact, it's uh, it's at historical highs right now, most obviously at the presidency. Right. Uh, But I think uh, certainly most of the chairmanships, particularly in the House. uh, Well, you you know, you know, the statistics.
1: Sure. Um, more people over sixty than there are under uh, under sixty in those positions. That's right.
0: Yeah, and they are unusually active. Uh, I think this is partly actually not just biological. Um, I think it's it's also generational. One of the things I have noticed is that, uh, and just statistically, you can see it, is Gen Xers are avoiding politics. Uh, they have not. They have tended not to vote very much. They didn't vote very much coming of age. Yeah. Uh, you know, they didn't particularly like You're government. Speaking
1: about me. You know, I'm talking
0: about people born in the 60s and 1970s. The 1960s, yeah. you kind of have two waves of, of Xers, right? You have the early wave Xers who are more the uh, the Atari versus the Nintendo wave. Right. So you got the you got the early wavers. You I'm an Atari of,
1: kid. Yeah. OK, exactly. Yeah. You
0: came of age with uh, with Reagan um, and the, the later wave Xers came of age with Clinton. And that early wave Xers, the 1960s, born a part of Gen X, are the most Republican um, uh, cohort right now by age. I've noticed that,
1: particularly the male. I mean, I've noticed that in Gen X, like Trump's, you know, it's always funny. There was this, there were the, the conventional wisdom was, oh, it's all old boomers that are for Trump. And his highest approval rating would actually be among older Gen X. Exactly. It was the 50-something Gen Xers, I noticed.
0: We, we have a, a database, a uh, kind of American leadership database. We actually have in there all 35, 36, 37,000 names of everyone who's ever served as a, um, uh, a congressman, uh, senator, governor, you know, Supreme Court justice, whatever, since 1789. And mm-hmm. we have everything, You know, their birth dates, their death dates, their parties, their everything. And uh, you can look it up. It's actually, you can do a query-oriented. Uh, uh, you know, Tell me report. where to find
1: this? Um, yeah. Uh, y-
0: yes, it's on uh, uh, LifeCourse, uh, uh, you know, my own site, uh, Life Course, uh, you know, the LifeCourse.com. Yep. Uh, we're about to you know, migrate that to my own site uh, that's coming up. But you can go on it and you can ask queries. And what's fascinating is if you look at people born in the 1960s, They are the most partisan cohort politically. In other words, everything, governors, senators, congressmen, they lean something like 56 percent or even more. Maybe it's 57, 58. I haven't checked lately uh, toward the Republican Party. That's the largest shift. That's the largest. That's the most skewed partisan distribution since Americans born in the 1910s Mm -hmm. who are obviously huge Democrats. Right. I mean, they came of age with the Great Depression. Right. Um, and they were, you know, they were the huge New Deal generation uh, that time. they were part of the G.I. generation.
1: No, it's what right? kept the Democrats in power till, you know, in the House till 1994. I mean, Right. It, right. It was the, uh, the coalition. Yeah. yeah.
0: That was that was yeah, all the way up to Gingrich. And so so this this is really interesting. And Xers uh, were extremely late. To run as serious candidates uh, for the presidency, and in fact, other than Obama, who's arguably a first-wave Xer, who was born the same year as uh, Doug Coupland. Uh, it's interesting, author- by the
1: way, that you decided. So I, I have this fight about, you know, who's a boomer and who's Gen <laughs> X, right? And Kamala Harris and 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 you know, the the boomers keep the 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 definition of the baby boom keeps expanding, right? It goes. So it sounds like you don't. I've always thought that Obama and I are ten years apart, but he and I had a he and I the life experiences we had, you know, going from black and white to color, cable televisions, so all the different. He and I had more of a more our childhood was more similar than he and my mother, who was born in nineteen forty seven, right. So I've always thought that he was more X than boomer, right. Um, it, but but you know, Kamala Harris, I guess, is technically a boomer too, isn't she?
0: Uh, well. Yeah, but, you know, technically, what do you mean by that? So the Census Bureau, um, you know, the, 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 the very term baby boom has an interesting history. It actually started to describe the economy in 1946. Uh, Fortune mm-hmm. magazine talked about, you know, the great American boom. And then shortly after that, people started noticing all these babies were being born. You know, so they talked about the great baby boom. And then Census Bureau um, in the early 1960s, when the number of births started going down again, uh, and the fertility rate, you know, started ramping down, kind of ratcheted, you know, bam, 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 really, really rapidly down in the early 1960s, um, they just suddenly decided, well, we're going to just call demographically this period of high births the baby boom, right? And so that just, it, it, the Census Bureau defined it purely in terms of birth rates. As, as you know, we define a generation in, in terms of what is, what is required to mean a social generation. That means Right. Attitudes and behaviors in common means a common age, location, and history, which means you know you have to have experienced a certain kind of childhood. In so common. would you
1: end? So you would end because I've always contended if you weren't eighteen during any part of the Vietnam War, you're not a boomer.
0: Well, that's much closer to my definition. Uh, we okay. actually we actually pushed the boomers a little bit earlier. We start the boomers in 1943 with people like Newt Gingrich. I mean, talking about him again, right? Of course,
1: you we, couldn't get Joe Biden into it but that's okay.
0: No, but <laughs> you now that, that Joe Biden is clearly very silent in yes. his personality, right?
1: It's but, true. But then
0: but then you uh, we end it in 1960. So we started yeah. with 1961 and in fact all of these people uh born in the um in in uh in the early 1960s um uh you know so many of them became you know celebrities in the in the early 1980s, right? And really defined this, this very anti, you know, boomerish generation, right? It was, it was like all these new movies that were coming out and, and, uh, and, and all the, you know, all the talk. We, we, it. it wasn't a deep, it wasn't, there, there wasn't
1: any deep meaning in the culture of the early 80s. Yeah, it
0: tended to design. be, it tended yeah. to be materialist. It, it tended to be, um, you remember the, um, um, i 'm just I'm just trying to think uh, who was the kid in that pop uh, in that pop show with a with a little kid with The Wall Street Journal under his arm you know
1: <laughs> Alex Alex, family ties with Alex P Keaton
0: yeah yeah exactly uh, yeah. So, you know you have that but 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 with the hippie parents right so you yep. yeah, anyway you got a very different image of suddenly the age gradient in the early 1980s with this uh, with this uh, with this new generation I mean, yeah it, it was,
1: turned out Alex P Keaton was Tom cotton is what we
0: found out. Is what you're saying, right? <laughs> well, certainly, certainly the same, uh, uh, the same social generation, right. and, uh, uh, and 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 that that shift, uh, I think, was, was really interesting. Uh, the the, uh, uh, the the reason I mentioned the the novel Generation X by, by Doug Copeland, it was uh, obviously from British Columbia is that he was talking about people exactly his own age. These are his own peers, right? Mm-hmm. And so he gave the name to his generation, right? And and I think that's about right. I mean, I have no problem with that. Anyway, if you look at this generation, um, other than Obama, again, kind of right on the border there, born in, born in 1961, yeah, uh, they had no serious people running for the presidency really until on mostly on the Republican side in 19... 19- uh, excuse me. In 2016, when suddenly you had all these people, you know, um, uh, you know Marco Rubio and 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 Cruz, and uh, you know just all these guys, right? I mean, all these guys were running. Well, under- I,
1: I would argue there were there were some Gen Xers that finally ran in 2020, right? Hillary Clinton block. I agree that.
0: Oh, well, any- no, but I'm I'm saying the first time. I'm saying no, I
1: understand. 2016. I, I what I wonder, and I'm just going to push back on you slightly on this. I see where you're going. Had Hillary Clinton not existed or decided not to run in 2016, you'd have had an equal number of Gen Xers on the Democratic side. So we would have been, you know, you'd have had Amy Klobuchar, Michael Bennett, the people, Cory Booker, the people that, you know, that are the Jet, that I do think they're about to get skipped over, at least on the Democratic side of things. I do think all those people run in 16, and we might have, you might be having a different.
0: No, I I, I, you, you're probably right about that. But again, I mean, is that like part of an old story? Boomers just taking all the air out of Well, no, country. and that's
1: the plan. Right. The boomers never know yeah. when to leave. You know, so, now, you're, now you're starting to pick at a scab that I love to pick at, which is but the boomers t- don't know when to retire.
0: But my point is, is that 2016, even if it was on both sides, is so late. I mean, mm-hmm. if you go back at the same age, boomers had already been running in about three different presidential cycles. That's my point. So my point is, is that Xers, it, it's just part of their generational temperament. They don't really want to be. The whole idea of political leadership and strong, you know, civic institutions is just not part of their generational character. The typical Xer is a, is a free agent, kind of libertarian instincts, like a lot of these people, you know, born right. in the 1960s. And their, their their ambition is just stay off the establishment's radar screen. You know But is I mean? that because of, now I'm
1: curious, is that? And, and this is where, you know, this is obviously becomes a chicken and egg debate. But is that a result of the tumult of the 60s and 70s politically? That like is. If, it's, right. It's, if you think about it, right. I, I you know, I, I think about like there was an exhaust, you know, I remember 1980 was about, I'm so exhausted from all of these fights of the last 20 years, right? Whatever it was, right. You would hear a lot of that. And I wonder if the, if Jenna and that, that, you know, that, That had an impact on on us in some ways. That we want to be apolitical. We want everybody to either get along or or don't get caught up in the extremes. How much of that is just sort of what you experience?
0: Um, but that's part of their persona, right? In fact, we we give these generations archetypes. We believe there are four basic archetypes of generations, as Mm -hmm. as you know from reading our book, right? And they recur. And the, uh, you know, the archetype we give for boomers is prophet archetype. You know, they're always born after great crises. They always come of age during our, you know, sp- spiritual awakenings in American history. Um, and the, the archetype born right after them is the nomad archetype, right? Mm-hmm. Extremely individualistic, uh, free agent driven. Um, they don't really care much the, for institutional life. You know, they certainly don't care much for civic life. And we've seen this kind of generation recur again and again. For example, coming after the famous missionary generation, which was, you know, William Jennings Bryan and right. <laughs> and, and and everyone who took us into World War One, and 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 in in their later years they became the great champions of the New Deal. But who was born right after them? It was the Lost Generation, right? They were the earlier nomad archetype. Uh, and they were, of course, put the roar into the roaring 20s, right? I mean, if you want some... So are these really... the folks
1: born when? This is the folks born They during... were
0: born in the in the uh, late 1880s and 1890s. Mm-hmm. So they were the ones who were... So they came of age
1: and, during the pandemic, the last pandemic. They were pandemic. chewed
0: up during World War One. They were right. the most cut down by the pandemic. The modal age of death during the pandemic in, um, in 1918, early 1919... Was twenty eight years old, right? Oh wow! So, so they that, just that, got,
1: that generation got wiped out.
0: Oh, they got know. they got wiped out. I mean, yeah. H. L. Macon later said that it was so horrible, just no one wanted to talk about it, which is why you actually don't see many descriptions of it. Uh, and it was uh, it was terrible. Uh, it was as many deaths in absolute numbers as were killed in 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 you know twenty 2020, twenty 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 one. The difference is is that America back then had a little bit less than one third the population, so you can imagine how. Bad that was, and the and the the age at which people died was so much younger as well, right? Anyway, a horrible time, and but they were the ones who were the the uh, the inventors, the entrepreneurs, uh, the, uh, the 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 Jim Fizz crowd. They were the barn barnstormers, the rum runners. I mean, they were the guys who did put the wildness into the 1920s. Oh, they were the Hemingways, the Fitzgeralds. Yeah. And, and I do find that extras find a kinship with that generation. Um, an earlier generation of the same type as the Gilded generation. And, you know, look, we can go back, right? And, and right. but my point is that there's a certain anti civic persona. The Among world the world gets ahead and makes itself due by deals made between individuals. It's it really is sort of more the private sphere. Is where things actually get done There's a certain kind of cynicism um but here's my here's a a broader point i'm trying to make is that if you look and by the way um uh uh, uh, schlesinger makes this and when he talks about cycles in american history schlesinger jr you know there's Mm -hmm. arthur you know senior and junior right and they both have this generational cycle theory and and i think they got it right and they talked about an alternation between public and private uh, fixation by by generations. And, um, you know, w- w- we kind of always agreed with that, except we just think it has this extra wrinkle of sort of inner world versus outer world, right? But, the, but if you look at recently, um, you know, look at the GI generation, which was a world-changing generation, right? And an enormous right. civic generation, we would all agree, right? Everything from the New Deal, World War II, um, uh, you know, this generation. You call
1: you refer to it. You're referring to what, what Tom Brokaw wants to do. Right. Right.
0: And, and this is a general, they poured more concrete than any other generation in American history. I mean that literally, I mean, all the, the harbors and dams and, 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 you know, they just, they, they force nature, right. To, you know, uh, be prosperous. Uh, and, but my point is, is that, um, that was an enormous physic, uh, civic generation. Their first candidate was Tom Dewey, who ran in um, 1940, uh, their uh, governor in New York. Their last candidate was Bob Dole, who ran in 1996. How's right. that for generational no, That's you're right. more than 50 years. I mean, I mean, just think of that, right? But So, but where does that, that go? Right, so, let's go to the millennium. So Let to the I follow up on this because it's interesting. Yeah. The next generation, the silent, was, again, that was recessive. Joe Biden is the first member of that generation to get the presidency. We always thought that they'd be completely passed over.
1: And, and assuming Bernie Sanders doesn't succeed him, he shall likely be the last.
0: <laughs> well, Bernie's, yeah, that would that would be interesting. You're right. He's I not mean, the only
1: silent generation left active you, in presidential politics.
0: So. Yeah, well, you're right, unless Mitch McConnell decides to run, but we <laughs> won't go there, right? But, 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 so, so you have this recessive generation. Then you have boomers have been a dominant generation. Then you have Xers, a very long generation, actually, in terms of cohorts. They're definitely recessive. Right. I mean, that's my point. They they, and even, in, even in terms of their share of the Congress, they're um, they're they're uh, they're they're lagging. They were the Well, they're not enough of us either, though, aren't they? I mean, we're also
1: that the, they're, they're they're plenty of them.
0: Look. They're the boomers the boomers
1: 22. delayed some of their right boomers are the parents to yes. some millennials and Xers.
0: Yes, but it has largely been filled in by immigrants. I remember, no, the yeah. huge immigrant generation generation. It's just
1: the biggest immigrant generation to date in America. Uh, oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah,
0: yes. The you know what the smallest immigrant generation per capita in American history is? The silent generation. No one is oh. coming to America, you know. Oh, the back 1930s, then they well, we, well,
1: right, and it was, and we had, we were putting in strict. It was at a time that we had some strict laws. Well, aware. we
0: put in the strict laws in, yeah. in the early 1920s. But the point is, the 1930s was the only decade in American history which had net emigration, right? Right. Um, and, you know, this was not a great place to come in the 1930s. But my point is that the Silent Generation has the uh, uh, has the smallest immigrant share of any generation in American history, and it's likely to stay that way for a while. Yeah. Um, and so so here you have it, right? Now, what happens is every time you have a recessive generation, right, you create a vacuum in civic life. And that helps suck the next generation in, uh, I believe, and I still, I think of, of all of our generational predictions about millennials, uh, I believe this is the down card that hasn't come up. A lot of the predictions we've made about millennials, right? That they would be, you know, they would be special and sheltered and confident and team playing. They believe in community. You know, millennials, you know, put the word social in front of everything, you know, social yeah. investing, social, right. social social media. media. Social media. But yeah. but but a lot of that stuff that we predicted have now become up cards. But the one thing we predicted, which is still just beginning to turn up hasn't really turned up yet is their eventual dominance in politics right and well that's I mean, what we're trying to do cuz we know it's coming exactly. we all know it's coming
1: and i guess the question is when it comes how is it you know you know what's that impact going to look like and i assume it'll be you know sort of like anything it'll it it it'll it'll probably swerve once or twice before before you end up settling on what it's going to be. Um,
0: yeah, I mean it will it will swerve a little bit. I mean, but remember, and this is this is why history is really helpful. Remember how the GI generation got to be a dominant generation, right? It didn't get to be a dominant generation by, you know, not like not like boomers, you know, not by 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 protesting against their parents' lifestyle and, you know, having their own- no, they had a mission. And stuff like they, that.
1: They, they had to do stuff. Like, they, they, had, they had to go, make, right? They had, like, there was-
0: They had to, well, obviously- Mom and Dad there, weren't
1: working. You had to bring, I think about my, you had to have, let relatives stay in your house. You had to do, like, you had to make a lot of sacrifices because there was no
0: choice. Well, right? you know, you you actually mentioned one thing that resonates with the millennials right now. A lot of relatives staying in my house. OK, yeah. let's talk about that for a second. My grandmother
1: my grandmother is 94. She's still bitter that she had to share her bedroom, not just with her brother, but with two other people all the time because we they know, lived in they lived in immigrant housing in Chicago.
0: The um, I guess when the right now, by the way, I should just a good, good millennial fact, right, uh, is that. Uh, Americans under age thirty-five living with other generations, living with their parents, I should say, uh, or occasionally aunts and uncles, but living with their parents mostly, obviously, is at its historical high, going back as far as we know, you know, one hundred and twenty years, right? Wow. It is larger in two thousand and twenty because it rose another twenty percent. But here is my point: this share living with their parents rose every year during the recent recovery since since two thousand and eight, since the GFC, right? 2011, 2012, 2013—all this recovery—it still rose every wow. year. It's now the highest ever. And guess when the earliest high was in multi-generational living? 1940, the last year of the Great Depression. Depression yeah. So you had all those GIs. You remember those Frank Capra movies, like you know, uh, uh, you know, Mister Smith goes to Washington. He can't yeah. take it with you, and these big Victorian homes. Uh, with With all these families living together. With
1: multiple families, yeah. Yeah,
0: and this was the norm. Now, after World War II, obviously World War II, suddenly everyone was employed, and then everyone came home, and the CBs came home from the Pacific, and they just started building these suburbs, and we suddenly became enraptured in the nuclear family. So suddenly every little family had its own home, and the the multi-generational households plummeted, right? It reached its all-time low in 1980 which is just when boomers were coming of age. 1970s was the decade in which no one wanted to live with anybody else. <laughs> it was the largest decline in the average size wow. of household in American history. Uh, you know, c- couples are divorcing. Uh, uh, old people were moving out to Sun City because, you know, they now had new Social Security benefits and everything. Right. Right? And uh, and boomers were all leaving to set up a commune in Wheeler Ranch or something. Right. So my point is no one wanted to live with each other. So, 1980. Now, did we have bad times for the youth economy? After that, early 1980s, we had the Volcker recession. You remember that double digit unemployment rates? I mean, you were young, but you probably have. some. No, it's a big
1: deal. Uh, Look, we also you know, that was also two years removed from the second my second memory of gas lines. You know, I have two memories of it, but some people have one or three, you know.
0: Well, we had we had. We had very high unemployment and we had particularly high youth unemployment, but I'm telling you right now, no boomer ever boomeranged back home to live with their GI generation parents. I'll tell you that actually straight out. It just yeah. never happened. You'd rather just die under a bridge somewhere. You know what yeah. I mean? Yep. You would not go back to these parents. You really didn't get along with personally at all. When Gen X came along, we invented the term boomerang kids, you know, to talk about people who, you know, boomerang back home. With the millennials we don't even use the word boomerang they just never leave i mean i mean, you should look around right i mean everyone keeps the bedroom open um and the point is now we have a generation that actually personally gets along extremely well with its boomer and ex or parents right and that is actually a distinguishing characteristic of this generation gis did the same thing they actually got along really well with their missionary generation parents The GIs idolized FDR. I mean, listen to LBJ talking about Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It's like he was a god. You know, he bore it all for all of us. I mean, he was a leader for all of us. So that close relationship between generations—it's nothing that boomers ever felt for the political leaders of the GI generation. Um, you know right. what did what were boomers saying about LBJ and Westmoreland and McNamara? Oh, I trust mean, me, I was raised, raised by an Vietnam LBJ hater. hater. Well, I would
1: say I was raised by an LBJ hater. It's sort of you know angry at him over Vietnam. So, so you know it. It. it you're yeah, right. Like they're
0: still angry about everything that yeah. their GI parents built. Just to hear boomers talk about the suburbs. <laughs> hear boomers talk about the homogeneousness and equality back then. We were all homogeneous and equal. But, uh, the Millennium. good old
1: days. The good old days of of of, uh, of uh, passive racism.
0: Yeah, passive. Well, passive racism, but also, you know, a strong middle class. Right. I mean, think of all these things that that millennials would love to have today, right? A really strong middle class, where, you know, a, a someone with without a college degree could actually you know support a family. I mean, think of that.
1: Well, I am. Uh, I'm. I'm at the very end of, of of our recording time, but this is why I'm so love all your work uh uh and then some but let me close with this question and and that and that sort of involves the pandemic is the pandemic is 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 going to be one of these markers in time right what will you be watching for over the next 10 years to just sort of understand you know especially looking back at what happened in you know post 1918 i mean we're already different in that we didn't acknowledge the pandemic then, at least as a society, we're acknowledging it now. But what will you be looking for to see how this shapes millennials? Um, um you, you know, and, or because they've already gone through so many traumatic events, 9-11, great recession, that this is just, you know, another, you know, another kick in the, you know, what?
0: Um, I, I think what this pandemic will do, uh, is, is two things and maybe I could just sum it up that way. Um, on the one hand, it shows how dysfunctional American civic life has become. I mean, I, I mean that very honestly, uh, and I think millennials see that more than anybody. Interestingly, millennials, and I've, I've watched the survey responses very accurately, millennials throughout the pandemic were more in favor than of older generations in top-down, um, uh, you know, community and government control. Actually, someone. You having national authority actually telling people what to do? It's all the older people, right? The extras and Boomers who's in? No, no. You got to protect individual rights. You know, people shouldn't be forced to do anything they don't want to do. This is a generational reversal. Boomers, imagine we had a pandemic back in the nineteen seventies. Would have been would have been young Boomers saying, you know, hell no, I'm not going. You know, I'm not going to go. And it would have been the older GI generation who are putting on their uniforms, right? Right, right. That's my right. point. And, yeah. and, and to understand generations is to understand generational reversal. So, my first point is, is that for, for millennials, it's to the final lesson, right? Is that the older generations in power today are civically incompetent. They do not have any skills left to actually run a country anymore. And it's time for them to take over. And I think the second thing it's going to show is that the pandemic has, has has wiped out all the old roadblocks in terms of fiscal? just a good example of this fiscal and economic policy yeah. doing anything it wants. I mean, after all, through most of 2020, everyone became a ward of the state. Whoa. Well, that just opens up whole new possibilities. I think millennials are going to run with that. I think we, to, and this may be my final thought about millennials, to look where they're going to go, look at how they're going to change government as an institution, particularly in our political and economic life. I think actually when it comes to social and cultural life, there you'd be a little bit more mainstream and a little bit less confrontational than I think a lot of people are expecting or sometimes fear.
1: and that's an interesting one to close on and I've I've um I'm already seeing a little bit of evidence in my 17-year-old on how Gen Z is. all, And I'm not going to get us started on Gen Z here in a minute. But I'm already seeing that I, I, that distinction you just said. I already sort of noticed that. Uh, well, this, this
0: is there. another conversation we'll have to have.
1: Yes, it will. Uh, and I think I'm going to have another conversation with you tomorrow uh, uh, on air. But, Neil, this was, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a huge um, devotee uh, to your thesis um, and have devoured your work for years. So, Neil, thanks, man. Appreciate You're it. You're welcome. Okay. You got it. You've been listening to the Chuck Toddcast from Meet the Press. Today's episode was produced by Justice Green, Matt Rivera, and Megan Lebowitz. John Reese is our executive producer, and our theme music composed by Spoke Media. You can catch Meet the Press daily on MSNBC. It's every day at 1. Meet the Press Reports is on demand on Peacock, where the big show is every Sunday morning. So thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for joining me on this episode of Demography Unplugged. If you like what you've heard and want to dive deeper, I've got some good news for you. I'm offering a special research service for subscribers. It provides unique insights you won't see anywhere else, deep dive analysis, charts, videos, and much more. It's designed to help professionals and investors uncover hidden trends and critical developments driving world markets and economies. You can learn more about it online at www.hedgeye.com or you can just Google Demography Unplugged. You can also follow me on Twitter at HowGeneration. That's H-O-W-E Generation.
1: This content is for informational purposes and does not constitute an offer to sell or buy any investment vehicle, nor does it constitute an investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. Hedgeye believes the information sources to be reliable, but is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions. The opinions expressed are those of the individual speaking. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information is protected by copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient provided access by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited and subject to the terms of service at Hedgeye.com.